0: So I grew up in a small community in Nova Scotia with two sisters and a brother, and my mom was very devout in her faith all her life she's been. So every Sunday we would go to church, and I remember when I was really young, I loved it. But as I grew up, religion started to lose its meaning, and it started to make less and less sense. And then the foundation that my faith was built on took a huge hit when I was 10 years old, and my parents went through a brutal divorce. And then it felt like my faith shattered completely when I went on to struggle through several years of intense bullying by my peers, <clears throat> sorry, both in school and in the church. <clears throat> so the social alienation eventually led me to leave the church altogether, and when I graduated high school and went on to study fine arts at NASCAD, I was more or less living life as an atheist. Though I never openly declared myself to be an atheist at that time, there was such a deep divide between what I was experiencing in life and who I understood God to be. And also what I understood religion to be in general um, unfortunately at that time I saw religion as nothing more than a fantasy my juvenile brain equated God with the cruelty I was experiencing and I figured why would I believe in a God like that so in that way my turn to atheism made sense it's not because I ever truly believed that God didn't exist it was because I was angry so I left my hometown and I went to NASCAD and then on to architecture school And I was always a bit of a social outcast, so I inevitably gravitated towards investing all of my time and energy into my career, and it became the source of my identity and self-worth for many years. But all through my early 20s, I felt like I was navigating a strange and all-consuming existential fog, and looking back now, what I was probably struggling with was nihilism. And I remember a day so clearly when I was living in Halifax. I was 22, and I prayed for the first time in at least eight years. There was no reason for me to pray. It wasn't a particularly difficult day. It was actually a beautiful day. But I found myself praying all the same. And all I prayed was that God would open my eyes and release me from this fog. And at the time, I didn't know exactly what I was asking. I just knew that I needed to ask it. And I even even remember wondering why I was praying to God at all, because uh, I was an atheist after all. And then absolutely nothing happened. And so I went on about my business. Over the years, I meandered in and out of various social circles. I moved around a lot for my job. I was listening to the new atheist trifecta that was Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and Sam Harris. And that was okay, so long as I didn't dig too deep into the philosophies they were advocating. And it all sounded so rational, and that level of rationality had to be correct. But I was also surrounded by a lot of misery. I was surrounded by hardcore feminists who achieved everything a good feminist should achieve in order to be happy. The salary, the independence, the career... They should be happy but were still angry at the world. I was surrounded by a lot of nihilism and I saw how it dictated the way people treated each other. I saw the damage of hookup culture and the limitations of the self-help and self-love culture. People were experiencing a deep sense of loneliness at such a visceral level that I as an observer just couldn't make sense of it. So five years ago that existential fog broke and when it happened it was almost instantaneous. I was living in Yellowknife, working for a corporate architecture firm, and I had just returned from a work trip where I'd visited some of the most remote communities in the Northwest Territories, and Nunavut as well. And during that trip, I met locals, all Inuk, who were so interested to know who I was and where I was from, and they were so gracious and shared some of the most heartbreaking stories. So I woke up one morning when I got back from that trip, and the thought came to me so clearly that I had seen the world for what it is, it is beautiful and it is broken, and that it was time for me to come home and within a week I tendered my resignation at my job. At the time that I resigned, I had no idea where I was going to go and hadn't even begun the process of applying for a new job. And then an old friend from university mentioned a small architecture office here in Charlottetown who was, that was looking for an intern architect. I had no reason to move to PEI, I have no family here, I don't have any social connections, but I went through the interview process anyways and I accepted the job offer. I gave all of my things to Goodwill and within a month I left Yellowknife with my dog, my violin, two suitcases, and I moved to PEI. So I arrived in PEI four years ago, but I've basically been living the life of a social hermit, (laughs) and I've been reading as much as I possibly can, and then for the first time in my life, I decided to read the Bible through cover to cover. And as I was reading, all of a sudden, Jesus was no longer the fantasy figure that I had understood him to be as a teenager. He was firmly grounded in reality. I started noticing patterns in the biblical narrative, and once I noticed them, I started seeing them everywhere around me, which, to discuss that, would be a much larger conversation. But I had the opportunity as well to reconnect with an estranged family member, and that process of forgiveness and reconciliation made it very clear to me that forgiveness is divine. It is not a man-made construct. And in that process of forgiveness, I truly discovered God's mercy. And thus, Jesus became my sincerest source of hope. I came to understand the the true value of redemption and the significance of the death and resurrection. And to call Jesus my Lord and Savior was no longer a cliche statement. It was true in every sense. At the very least, without Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I wouldn't be able to successfully engage in that process of forgiveness and reconciliation. At least, I don't believe I would have. So belief in and allegiance to Jesus became the most rational decision I could possibly make. So finally, when Easter came around this year, I decided to look for an online church service, and I just happened to stumble onto the Cornerstone YouTube channel. And I started listening to the sermons and found myself thinking, huh, that this actually makes sense. And then there was a specific Sunday where the pastor at the Cornwall site said something along the lines of, faith cannot be lived in isolation. I can't remember remember the exact wording, but it struck me and I realized he was right. So I decided the next week I would attend in person, but the Cornwall site was all booked up, so I ended up reserving a spot here in Stratford. And I remember that first day I showed up. I think I sat in my car for at least 15 minutes before coming in. It was the first time I stepped foot inside a church in over 10 years. With the exception of visiting some incredible churches to admire the architecture, and I thank everyone here who has welcomed me with so much warmth, and for those I haven't met yet. So when Pastor Gordon mentioned baptism in a sermon a few weeks ago, I decided that now is the time. So I'm thankful to each and every person who has welcomed me and is here to witness my baptism. That is it.
1: <laughs> thank you, everyone. you. Baptism is a very meaningful thing for us as Christians, and we sort of understand what a culture is or how a place works by what it celebrates, and so what we're celebrating here is a life that's been changed, and the symbolism of this is identifying with the person of Christ who was buried and raised to new life, and so we are celebrating that that's already been happening in Deborah's life, and that we are... Uh, recognizing her as a new person in Christ, which is a wonderful thing. So, all that said, when someone gets baptized, the way we, things, we do things around here... Some churches, you don't know if you're allowed to clap or cheer. This is a church where we clap and cheer, okay? Deborah, come on in. Yeah, it's coming come right down to the end. Woo! I haven't lost one yet, so... You might be the first. Um, Okay. Deborah, is it your profession that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life and it's your intention to follow him for the rest of your days? Yes. Then it's my pleasure in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to baptize you. Amen. You could have taken that off, sorry. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Congratulations. Just watch your step. Woo! I'm not crying, it's baptismal water. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Invite you to stand as we sing just about the goodness of God and all my life you have been faithful this song says and I hope that that's been your story as well we've seen that in uh, in Deborah's life and now we celebrate it in ours Someone else their story and really need to say anything else. Uh, Deborah did such a wonderful job sharing her story and saying so many things. And, and quite unbeknownst to me, until I read her testimony, how uh, relevant it would be even to some of the themes of the sermon today. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm still going to preach. So uh, so we have been going through this series, uh, Kingdom and Culture, and we've been exploring um, the, how the way of the kingdom does not always align with the way of our culture. Uh, let's just show quickly the sort of Venn diagram. Sometimes these overlap and sometimes they don't. So the, the kingdom can be described as where God is present and life is lived God's way. And culture can be described simply as the way we do things around here. And sometimes the way we do things around here overlaps with God's ways and sometimes it doesn't. And so we're exploring various themes that are common in our culture, conversations that are happening, and trying to understand if the way that the world lives, which we live in, if that aligns with the way of God. And so today, um, we're going to talk about women and worth. Uh, The last message that I preached was on the sexual aspect of the human experience. And so this kind of flows out of that a little bit. Uh, But I want to highlight some of the conflicting messages that our culture shares around women and their value. Uh, I know there's many more. I tried to listen to some women to hear uh, kind of these messages. But listen to these, how they contrast. Have a fulfilling career. Raise a family. Often those are in conflict. Love your body the way it is. But also there's a strong message of look like a model. Be independent and confident. And don't intimidate men by being smarter than them, better than them, more capable than them. Women are just like, yeah, this is my life and I don't want to laugh out loud because it will intimidate the men. But this is, this is why women sometimes play dumb. Much more dumb than they really are. I didn't mean that to sound quite the way that did. <laughs> I, I hope you understand. But I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say that women are very smart and often try to dumb it down for the men, such as myself. Okay. Um, women are told, be sensitive to others, and also told, don't be too emotional. Often in the workplace, it's not... Uh, seen as appropriate to display, uh, you know, emotions that are more typical of the feminine nature. Stand up for women's rights. And don't be a crazy feminist. We could say that in different kinds of language as well. But there's these conflicting messages. And it's in, it's what inside that counts, similar to before, but it's also the message of show some skin. And often uh, women in our culture are... Um, trying to achieve a, a greater sense of freedom, and certainly uh, over the past hundred years or so uh, within Canadian culture, there's been greater and greater freedoms where women have more and more agency over their bodies, their lives. I was looking through some of the statistics. It was, I think, just 1922 when um, women in PEI were allowed to vote for the first time. And I think it was 1926 when women were actually considered persons in Canada, which is kind of an interesting idea. And then I think it was 1964, before women were allowed to open a bank account on their own, without um, sort of a male's approval. And uh, these are interesting ideas, very recent. And so there is a certain amount of uh, liberation and freedom that has been a positive thing, but it's also taken us into other places and to other extremes as well. And so what we want to do is explore women, their worth, their value, from uh, another perspective. Let's go to the next slide here. And I want to show you a quote. I I referred to this article several weeks ago. Um, It's by Michelle Goldberg, and this was published in the New York Times. The article was titled, Why Sex-Positive Feminism is Falling Out of Fashion. And she's This is a a bit of a complicated quote because she's quoting someone else, so it's a quote within a quote, but I hope you'll hear kind of what's going on. In March, Vox's Rebecca Jennings reported on the spread of the cancel porn movement on TikTok. So some of you are already like, I don't know what TikTok is, I don't know what Vox is. I don't. But just follow along. There's a movement towards canceling pornography. Jennings quoted the caption to one video, liberal feminism telling young girls that hookup culture is liberating, conditioning them to think that if you don't have extreme kinks at a young age, then they're boring and vanilla. And encouraging them to get into sex work the minute they turn 18. Then she comments, somehow, as sex positivity went mainstream and fused with a culture shaped by pornography, attention to emotion got lost. Now listen to this next part especially. Sex positive feminism became a cause of some of the same suffering it was meant to remedy. And within our culture, as particularly women's value has been acknowledged more and more, what has happened is almost a pendulum swing, where women are told that what makes them truly free is to be able to do whatever they want, and that that means often, uh, you know, highly sexualized activity. But that actually becomes another form of enslavement because it's still based around what men want, or men's power over women. And so, as it says, it often becomes the cause of some of the same suffering it was meant to remedy. Now, even within the church, uh, an understanding of how women should be treated and valued uh, has had its ups and downs. I'm not going to stand here and pretend that the church has uh, got it all figured out and the culture has it all bad. That's not the case. I want to take you to a passage that has some very instructive and helpful things but also some things that I think uh, we need to correct and to hear more appropriately. This is First Timothy chapter 2, and this this could be seen in the first part especially as a great uh, commentary about an alternate way to, to the way of the culture. The way of the culture sexualizes and objectifies women by their bodies, and it says that their value is based on their appearance and their looks. But here in First Timothy chapter 2, we read this. I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. Now, the first aspect, let's talk about the modesty aspect for just a moment. And this passage has a lot that could be said about it, I'm going to do it very quickly, very briefly. We can have a longer conversation if you'd like. The first section is modesty. Well, what's being valued here, as we talked about the sexual aspect of human experience last time, is that women's bodies should not be objectified, and so they should be handled with modesty. We should not overly emphasize one aspect of our humanity to the detriment of others. Honoring the image of God means that we don't put ourselves forward as just simply sexual beings, but that we are holistic humans. And so modesty is a call uh, for women to not sexualize themselves and emphasize only one aspect of their entire life experience. Now, I said before um, in that last sermon, I've said, men, it is your responsibility to be cautious and careful about what you do with what you see. And this is not a call to say it's now the woman's responsibility for what the men do. However, it is a call to say modesty is a call to honor the image of God, which you represent, by not overly sexualizing yourself or not flaunting your sexuality, we could say. And so that's, as we see the the talk of the image of God and honoring that, there is this call to modesty. This was, by the way, a great comment from Lorna to me after that last sermon. And so this is a message not simply, although it's addressed to women here, it's not simply for women. All human beings, especially those who follow Christ, should recognize that we shouldn't flaunt our sexuality. We are sexual. We shouldn't deny that aspect of who we are. But neither should we bring it so to the forefront that we force everyone else to deal with us only on those terms. So modesty is a call Although here in this passage addressed to women, it's something that all Christians should recognize. Now this next part here is perhaps more challenging for us. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I don't let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. Now what that has often turned into in the culture of the church has been that women are not allowed to preach or teach. Certainly not over men when when in the room. Other times it's meant that women can't be pastors or church leaders of any kind. Now what I want to suggest to you is that's been a misunderstanding of what's being said here. And I'll give you a very brief understanding of why. It's very important when we come to passages like this to read them in context and to recognize that they come from a cultural perspective. And what Paul is writing here to the people uh, in uh, Timothy's congregation of Ephesus he is addressing a problem. Now, if you start, if you go back one chapter to 1 Timothy chapter 1, you'll see what the problem is. The problem is there's false teachers in the church. People who are teaching things that aren't true about Jesus, about the way of the kingdom. And what Paul says about them is they're talking, but they don't know what they're talking about. Now, in Ephesus, it was a city that was dominated by a female-based religion. And so what was happening is, uh, in that city, it was very common to see priestesses leading cultic worship, and here Paul is saying, what I want you to do is be mindful that everyone around you is used to seeing women leading the worship, but you should be different. And what he's advocating here isn't so much uh, that women should always and forever not talk in worship, but their freedom that they now have in Christ shouldn't then lead them to talking through the sermon. What's happening is women are talking through the sermon and chattering, basically. And he's like, well, that's disrespectful. You should listen and learn quietly. That's just kind of basic manners that he's addressing. I don't let women teach men or have authority over them. Well, what does that mean? The word here that we've translated in English as authority is a unique word, very rarely used. But it implies something uh, very important for understanding what that means. It's a domineering kind of attitude. So women in their freedom should not be domineering over men. Well, that makes sense anyway. Neither should men be domineering over women. But the problem that's happening in Ephesus is that women are coming from outside of the church in, and they're demonstrating the kind of cultic practices they're used to, where they're domi- the women are domineering over the men, and they're disrespecting uh, the speakers who are talking, and they're talking through the sermon. And this is a problem for that culture, for that specific church. Let them listen quietly. In fact, uh, this passage is often, uh, by other commentators and translators, it should probably read, At this time... Or I'm not currently letting women teach. And it's because the women haven't had the training, and they're not showing a kind of respect for the teaching aspect of things. Now, why do I say that this is culturally bound, and why we haven't understood this as a lifeline or lifelong thing that all Christians should be, that women should never teach and preach? Well, it's because Paul himself ministered with women. So if he's saying this, but then doing something else, I would make him a hypocrite. But in fact, what we see through the life and ministry of Paul is that he ministers alongside and listens to the teaching of other women. And he supports them. Yeah, you Just read Romans 16, you'll see all the women that, that Paul is doing ministry with. So it can't mean that women aren't actually supposed to have anything to say or to teach ever. It's a culturally bound moment. But unfortunately, this has been used as a sledgehammer to crush down women and, and squelch their giftings by the Holy Spirit. So, the church, in other words, what I'm saying is, hasn't always gotten this right either. We've sort of clamped down, and this was a situation where there was greater freedom, greater and greater freedom within the church that came from the life of Jesus. And Paul was saying, whoa, 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 before things get out of hand, let's bring things back into line a bit. So, with that said, there's a lot more that could be talked about, but we need to keep moving. If you want to have further conversations, I'd be happy to do that or send me some questions. But let's look at some kingdom foundations now because that's Paul and that's Paul trying to explain the way of the kingdom that he's seen in Jesus. And we need to go back to Jesus and come to the root of all this. So here's a few kingdom foundations. These are similar to what we've been saying all along week after week. Some basic things we need to understand from a kingdom perspective before we get into it further. First of all, humans are created in God's image. We talked about this throughout the summer, and it'll be a major point of this series. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and so on, we read that humans, both male and female, are created in the image of God. And women and men are equally the image of God. It's not that one is greater or more priority than the other. We also know from a kingdom perspective that things are not the way they were supposed to be. The world we're living in, as you said it very well, Deborah, was, it's beautiful and it's broken. The image of God that we were created in is seen most fully in Jesus. So when we want to know what it looks for us, looks like for us to live as the image of God, we have to look at Jesus. And that's what we're going to do. And then the final sort of point in this kingdom foundations is that Jesus restores all things for better. And so the way that we live has got to be based on what we see fully in Jesus. So let's look at Jesus. Let's look at the next slide here where we explore uh, Jesus and and his relationship with women, how Jesus treated women. Well, we see in John chapter 4, Jesus respectfully spoke to women in public. This is just one example of many. We see also that he valued women's health. In Mark chapter 5. There's two issues in that chapter. One, there's a woman who's had an issue of bleeding for 12 years. It's a long time, long time. And then there's a daughter of Jairus who is dead. Jesus deals with both of them and he cares about their health and he heals the woman by her faith and then he uh, heals the daughter. Jesus in John chapter 8 defends a woman against injustice. Here in this situation there is a woman who is caught in the act of adultery and she's drugged, naked before Jesus to humiliate her and they ask him what should be done with her. What's notably missing from the story is the dude. She was caught in the act of adultery but there's only her, not the guy too. So this is an act of injustice where she's being shamed. How ridiculous to bring someone out into public naked like that, simply to shame her. And what does Jesus do? He addresses that in a way that values her, gives her dignity, and addresses the issues at hand. Jesus also demonstrated friendship with women. We see this in John chapter 11. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, siblings. Uh, He was friends with all of them. There's other... Uh, ways that their story is told that's really special and meaningful. We also see that in Luke chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 12, Jesus welcomed women into discipleship. In Matthew 5, we see that he taught men to treat women with dignity. We also see in Luke 21 that he pointed to women as models of faith. So when Jesus was trying to explain what it means to be faithful to God and to live within the kingdom, he points to women. And in Luke chapter 8, we see very clearly that Jesus ministered with women, the key word being with. They came alongside of him, worked with him, and all throughout. Now, I don't know if if you're quite aware of this, but this is incredibly unique. There's no other religious leader, no other religious teaching where this kind of treatment of women is fully displayed. There's never a single moment where Jesus gives women a hard time, disrespects them, or treats them in any way rudely in a domineering way. Now, you could say, well, maybe they just left out all the bad parts. Okay, well, even if they did, why would they paint him that way? Why would they paint him that way? Because the culture was saying, you can do that to women. Why would they paint Jesus, if that's true, if they edited out all the bad parts, why would they paint him in a way that was treating women with such dignity, honor, and respect? Now, I believe that what Jesus is doing here is he is treating women the way they were designed and created in Genesis chapter 1. We could read through the Old Testament and we can see all kinds of stories that from our cultural lens today might give us pause. However, if we were to read that carefully, we would also see how women are treated by standards of other cultures in that day with great dignity, honor, and respect and Jesus advances it back to the way it was intended to be in the first place. Now that's a quick list, a quick summation of how Jesus treated women, but what we're seeing here is Jesus is treating them as people who have honor, dignity, and respect. He values them deeply. Let's go to the next slide here. Now we're going to begin to take a, a walk through the very beginnings of the church that Jesus establishes. We're going to begin to see how Jesus is creating his people to live in a new way. And after Jesus has been crucified and raised, he says to his disciples, I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit. Stay in Jerusalem until I do. And in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, an incredible thing happens where the Spirit comes upon the disciples and they begin communicating in all kinds of languages the good news about Jesus. And Peter steps up before the crowd of thousands that are gathered in the city. And he begins to quote the prophet Joel, prophet from the Old Testament. And this is what he quotes in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. He's going to say it again so we get the point. Even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. The spirit is given without reservation to both men and women. Both male and female are created in the image of God, and both male and female are designed to be powered by the Spirit of God. Without reservation, barrier, or qualification. And what Jesus is doing is sending his Spirit so that his people would be formed around that truth, a new reality about how they will relate to one another in community. The next slide here. We see in Acts chapter 8, verse 12. I should say, at the end of that story, the end of Acts chapter 2, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are baptized that day. It's a good day. We saw one here. You know, when I grew up in the church, my pastor, the one who baptized me, Reverend David Watt, he said, every time he ever did a baptism, he said, and yet there is still room. What doth hinder you from being baptized? Every single time. You know I've got it memorized. (laughs) So that's how often he said it. But that's a wonderful picture. You know, we still have a tank that's full. I'm not saying you have to get baptized today, but we can do this again next week if you want. Um, But that was a remarkable thing that started to happen. Listen to what happens in Acts chapter 8, where actually uh, the culture starts to turn against the church. Because this is so revolutionary. All the things that they're teaching, the way that they're living in community is so revolutionary that it's a threat to the standard culture of the day. And in fact, Paul, who we read from earlier, his name was Saul at this point, and he was going around dragging women and men into jail, into prison, to punish them, to stop the message going out. Why was he dragging women? Well, because the women were a significant part of this new uh, movement. And here in Acts chapter 8, verse 12, uh, we see people responding to Philip giving this message. Here's what it says. But now the people believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Here's something that's really significant about that that you might not realize because we're used to seeing men and women mentioned together here. What was the sign and symbol of Israel that they were faithfully committed to God? Does anybody want to say it out loud? Does anybody know? Circumcision. Which of the two get to participate in the covenant promise symbol of God's people? Only the men. But now, in the community of Jesus, the kingdom of God, both men and women are allowed and invited to participate in the symbol of God's community, which is baptism. Now no longer is this a male-dominated religion. This is a religion, a practice of faith. It's a way of living that includes everyone fully. Women and men alike were being marked by the covenant symbol of faith. That's a beautiful thing that's happening in the way of Jesus, in his name. Let's keep going. Galatians 3, 26-28 is now Paul, remember Paul had this massive conversion experience where he was punishing all these women and men, and he was dragging them into prison, even killing some of them, and he has this traumatic encounter with Jesus that changes his life. He's writing to the people in Galatia, and he says this. He's including the, the image of baptism and so much going on here. He says, "...for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus." And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's very similar to a passage in Colossians 3 that I shared a number of weeks ago. But I want to pay particular attention to this. We are baptized into the life of Christ in baptism, as we've just witnessed here today. But when it says here there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, that's not to say that, it's, that it doesn't matter about being a male or a female anymore. What it means is that's not a barrier to participating in the life of God. You are no longer excluded from the life of God, the living God, the Creator. You're no longer excluded just because you're a Gentile. You're no longer excluded because you're a slave or you're poor. You're not excluded because you're a female. And the psalm that we had read earlier uh, by Lorna was Psalm 100, in which it invites all of the earth to come through the gates into worship. Now, what's unique about that, that you maybe didn't know, is the whole earth wasn't allowed into the temple area, wasn't allowed into the tabernacle. The only ones who were allowed through the gates We're the people of God of Israel. But in Psalm 100, it's saying the worship of God, the relationship with God is meant to be experienced by everyone in the world. And Psalm 100 is looking forward, foreshadowing to the day when Jesus will make that possible. We can all enter into the gates. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not Jewish. And I'm welcomed into the life of the kingdom. I don't know about you. Are you Jewish? How many of you ever had Jewish ancestry? We are all probably invited into the life of Jesus in this unique and special way because he's done something new. We are not excluded from the life of God any longer. And so these words here are not saying it doesn't matter whether you're a male or female. It's saying it's no longer a barrier to you experiencing the fullness of the life of Jesus, to be fully like Christ, to be fully the image and reflection of God. What a beautiful thing. What good news that is for all of us, not just for women. What a wonderful thing it is for us to recognize we all have such incredible value and dignity as human beings. Yes, this is good news for women, but within the Christian teaching, the way of Jesus, the kingdom of God, Women have incredible value and deep, deep worth. And I want to take you now to sort of our final verses here. Let's go to the next slide. And this is Ephesians chapter 5. This is going to be stated in the context of a marriage. okay? But it's talking about how men value women at at a more general principle as well. And I've heavily excerpted it just for time and clarity. Um, but this is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18-33, through 33, if you want to read this. And it's framed within this context of the importance of the Holy Spirit to this new way of life. It says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, you heard the word submission earlier. What I want to highlight for you is that this is being said of men towards women as well as women towards men. Both are intended to submit to each other. It's not just that men rule and girls drool. Well, that was the language on the schoolyard. Do you remember? It's not that men get to dominate. Domination is not a part of the life of God. But it's that we together, in mutuality, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Christ. And it says, for husbands, this means... Now, it's addressed women and what it means to be a wife. But for husbands, this means love your wives. What's unique about that is men didn't have to do that back then. You could be property. You could be owned. Men could do whatever they want with their wives. But here Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The way of God, the life of the kingdom, means that we love. And that relationship should be based on a valuing of each other. So for husbands... Submitting to one another out of a reverence for Christ being filled with the Holy Spirit means loving your wife. Just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. How valuable are women to men in the life of the kingdom? So valuable that we, like Christ, should be willing to lay down our lives to declare that they are valuable. Now, The same is true, women to men. But I'm highlighting the area that's a problem. Men, we should value not simply our wives, but any woman, as being such inherently dignified and honoring them as image bearers of God, that we would be willing to sacrifice and to serve and to honor in all of our ways. So read that again. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. With equal value. So again I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now what's really interesting about this passage, women were addressed just before this, but there's this very little bit about how women should address their husbands, and there's this very long bit about how men should dress their wives. The reason is, the dudes are getting it wrong. And they need a lot more explanation. He needs to say it again, as it says, so that they'll get the point. See, in the life of the kingdom of God, women have incredible value because they are the image of God and can be filled by the Spirit of God. Women equally have the opportunity to look like Jesus his character, and to be engaged in his activity. Jesus showed this in the way he treated women and he made it possible by giving his spirit to us. Within the church, we should be a place where women are honored and dignified, given respect, they have agency and value because Jesus was willing to die for women. And in our church, We have recognized the teaching of Scripture and read it carefully and recognized that women should, within the church, have places to lead and serve and give fully because we shouldn't restrict the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to say to you here in this place today, churches don't always get it right. And women, if you've ever been hurt by the church, your voice has been squelched or squashed, you've been put down, you've been made to feel lesser than, then I apologize. And women, if you've ever felt that men have dominated and ruled over you within the church, then I'm sorry. And men, if you have ever treated a woman in the church as lesser than simply because she's a woman, you're wrong. And you need to change that. And you need to value women. Not just your wife, but any woman as being inherently dignified and honorable, full and worthy of respect. Because that's the way of Jesus. Jesus. And we are a community that's shaped around the life of Jesus. We want everything we do to be a reflection of the image of God, which is this incredible value based on women, men, together in unity, living out love that's self-giving, self-less, and sacrificial. That is what women are worth in the kingdom. It's a beautiful thing. And I've had the blessing in my own life to be uh, raised by and encouraged by and supported by some incredible women in my family, in the church. And I know that the church is far better when every person who is filled by the Spirit of God has voice to the good news of Jesus. Every community is better when a church is serving the life of Jesus Fully, by Jesus' own power. And the world could be a little bit more like God intended it to be. If we all lived in a way that dignified women and men together in unity and love. I'll leave you with that picture for today. For that incredible thing. We're going to go further in the series as we go, but that's, that's it for today. I want to remind you we're going to do a pastor's forum in a couple of weeks, it will be here in Stratford. And uh, we'd love to have your questions if you want to email any in. We'll address some on that day, but I'd love to get some of those in advance so we can prepare good answers for you as well. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to pray. And then I'm going to invite you to take part in communion right away, right following the prayer. And I'll say a few more words once we get to that, but let's pray now. Thank you, Jesus, for how you've shown us what it looks like to live like god you've given us a model and a witness for how men and women should be both treated with dignity and respect and honor and how we can be empowered by your spirit to be a reflection of you to reflect your character and to reflect your activity to the broken and beautiful world around us and so jesus we thank you that you make that possible that you show us a new way a better way a way that doesn't end up causing more suffering that is just like we found in the first place. A way that isn't simply a reaction against something, but a way that is deeply rooted in how you created the world to be in the first place. Life-giving, flourishing for all human beings. And so Jesus, teach us more and more how to do that with each other. Teach us more and more how to live a life of love and service and self-giving. Teach us to be like you. The Christ that we've seen die for us, to value us by going to the cross in our place. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, under the silver bowl, you'll find some bread. And you can take a cup. If uh, you're sitting off on the side, there's tables over here. If you're over here, maybe uh, check around, see if there's any at the empty tables. There's also some more extra over here. We're kind of a few extra bodies in here today. We'll wait for people to find these. This act... Is the other act which defines our covenant community. Baptism is the way that we mark somebody entering into the life of the church, the way of God, the kingdom of God. And communion is the way that we celebrate God's sustaining power for us along that journey. And, you know, I recognize to an outsider, this probably seems really strange. Why did everyone get something about the size of a crouton and a very, very small drink? I don't mean that in any way, disrespectfully. But it seems so strange. It seems so small. But I assure you that this bread, which reminds us of the body of Jesus that was broken, and this cup, which reminds us of the shed blood of Jesus... This is a bigger meal than you'll ever eat this weekend. This is a greater form of sustenance and nourishment than you could ever receive from the largest turkey dinner you could ever possibly imagine. This is the life of Jesus that's made available to us in his broken body, his shed blood, his spirit within us, alive. And so now as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, reminding ourselves of our commitment to the very words which we heard here in the tank, that Jesus is Lord. We receive his, once again, we receive and remember his sustaining power throughout it all. And we remember that the life that was in Jesus may be in us also. Eat and drink. I'll invite the worship team to come and we'll close with a final song. Everyone wants to go home, Dick. I don't know a whole lot of you guys. Shout
0: out to yeah.
1: Yeah. So Kansas to do the prayers of the church, special friends we have here. Everybody, you started the meeting journey, you put a good church family. I'll get to know some of you people now as things are changing. hope you'll really get That's wonderful. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. That's beautiful. I'm I'm so happy to hear that. Okay. Last call. Uh, (laughs) Wonderful to hear that. What a wonderful thing. We have so much to celebrate, and this is a reason for thanksgiving today it's the work of jesus his work his sustaining power his redemption in our lives what a wonderful thing so yeah i'll just remind you again the offering boxes here especially for the mission offering today um if you'd like to give but what a wonderful thing we have so much to celebrate so much to be thankful for and let's just close in a word of prayer god we thank you for that good news from dick we thank you from the for the good news we've seen in the life of deborah We thank you for the good news that we've heard and seen in your scripture and your word today. We thank you for how we have seen the good news fully alive in Jesus, his death and his resurrection. Thank you for the hope that we have, the real hope that is ours because of Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to live in a new way, a better way here and now even. And thank you that your love is present by your spirit within us to know the love of the Father, to know the life of Jesus, and to know the fullness and power of the Spirit. We thank you as we celebrate today. We thank you.